A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems, too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and, of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. We all live in fast-paced lives, and none more so can be said for parents with young children. Supporting your baby through their early stages and helping with their development is what is at the forefront of every parent's mind. At times, parents all need a helping hand, and that can be in the form of a brand that we love and trust, just like Yo Valley. Ensuring your child gets all the nutrients they need is so important, and this includes calcium. With Yo Valley's Little Yo Yogurt Pouches, which are suitable from six months, they're perfect for weaning and developing the palates of your little ones. Available in two delicious flavors, the red berries and the apple and pear, the Little Yo pouches are sure to keep children satisfied and full. To find out more, head on over to yovalley.co.uk and find it in your local supermarkets. Hello and thank you so much for tuning in to this week's Food for Thought, a podcast that's on a mission to equip you with all the evidence-based advice that you need to live and breathe a healthy lifestyle. I'm Rhiannon Lambert, registered nutritionist, best-selling author of Renourish, A Simple Way to Eat Well and founder of Retrition, London's leading private nutrition clinic. In each episode, I'll be joined by special guests, all of whom can be considered authoritative voices in health, so that together we can learn fact from fiction and empower the healthiest and happiest versions of ourselves with trusted expert advice. The number of diabetes cases is on the rise, and not just in the UK, but globally. While this is a startling fact, it is reassuring to know that we can prevent cases of type 2 diabetes and turn things around. Education, as always, can help dramatically with your prognosis, as well as realising the importance that your diet and movement can have in relation to this disease. This week's Food for Thought sees registered dietitian Chris Shayette and I delve into why we should all learn about diabetes and what we can do to prevent it. Hello, Chris. Hi there. Thank you for having me along today. Oh, absolute pleasure. I mean, you're the perfect guest for this topic. And I think it's something that so many people are impacted by because I've read that it's nearly 1 million people in the UK that have been underdiagnosed with diabetes. Obviously, that's not differentiating between type 1 and type 2. But just how likely are we to have this? Well, yeah, I mean, it's a a huge problem. And I think one of the the big issues is that a lot of people don't have any symptoms. So they may have diabetes, but not know about it. And as you say, we think there's around a million people in the UK that have got type 2 diabetes, but actually don't know they have it. And the big problem with this is that the longer this goes on, the more likely it is that people may get complications before a diagnosis is even made. So we actually know that one in three people have complications by their time they're diagnosed with diabetes. 
and this is type 2 diabetes. Yeah, it, that's, it's, it's more common than people realise, isn't it? And the term diabetes, like we said, is thrown around so freely. So let's differentiate between those types. So there's type 1 and type 2. Do you want to delve in there? Yeah, sure. So type 2 is the one I think when people maybe hear about diabetes or they hear that a friend might have diabetes, that's the one that they're they think that they're probably talking about and it is the most common type so it accounts for around about 90% of diabetes but there are other types um the other two that i guess uh, the ones that people may be aware of are type 1 diabetes and this accounts for around 10% of people with diabetes and then there's also gestational diabetes which is a, a type of diabetes that occurs in pregnancy yeah and that's something again that is so so important that um women are aware of because the risk is literally i mean when when you're pregnant it's something you are told about but i don't think people know the signs to look out for because is yeah. there any key kind of symptoms well, I mean, so gestational diabetes, as you say, it, it can be very common, actually. So it affects about one in six pregnancies. Um, one of the, the things, actually, is that people, again, generally don't have any symptoms. So usually it will be picked up on a blood test. It's usually diagnosed in the second or third trimester. And it's usually picked up because a midwife may have asked a lady to go for a, a test because they may have risk factors that they associate with being more common with gestational diabetes. So that's usually how it's picked up rather than any particular symptoms at all. Yeah, yeah. And what about pre-diabetes? Because that's something, again, that I don't think is hardly ever mentioned. It's something that, again, you hear about in the news quite a lot, actually being pre-diabetic and it being a risk factor perhaps for other things as well. Is that correct? Does that go undiagnosed? Yeah, that's right. So, I mean, pre-diabetes is a term really that describes people that are at risk of going on to get type 2 diabetes. Um, it's also sometimes known as borderline diabetes, or mm. people may have heard the terms things like impaired glucose tolerance or impaired fasting glucose. And what all of these terms really mean is it's having higher than normal blood glucose levels, but not high enough to tip someone over into having type 2 diabetes and I think like you say it's maybe not talked about that much although there is nowadays actually a lot more there to help people that are at risk so if you live in England and um, there's now the NHS diabetes prevention program which is both digital and um, there's face-to-face -face options as well to actually help people to maybe address some of the risk factors and to actually reduce their risk of going on to get diabetes so there is a lot of help out there but it's sometimes uh, knowing one whether you may be at risk and what those risk factors may be and then how you can maybe do something about that yeah and that's I guess um, my role as a nutritionist and something we're educated heavily on these days is controlling and looking after blood sugar levels so when we when we say the word glucose for our listeners we are also referring to the same thing as blood sugar blood glucose um, glucose is effectively sugar and um, it's one of the body's preferred sources of fuel it fuels your brain just as much as your day-to-day -day activity and basically so many functions it can pre-diabetic states though chris can they be reversed or is it often too late when they're found out 
Um, yeah, so we know definitely that they can be reversed and modified. So if you're at risk of diabetes, uh, it's important to understand what those risk factors might be. So some things uh, maybe are not modifiable, but for example, if you're um, overweight, then if you're at risk of diabetes as well, and maybe you're in the pre-diabetic range, then certainly by losing weight, we know that if you lose about 7%, then that can actually reduce your risk of going on to get diabetes by about 60%. So that's only, you know, generally it's a smallish amount of weight can have a huge impact on your future risk. So weight loss is one of the key factors. Yeah, it's it's very sensitive, I think, the topic of weight, because we know that it's a factor. It, it's the same when I'm, I'm discussing, for instance, um, pre and postnatal nutrition, how weight affects things. But with diabetes, it is one of those big kind of elephants in the room, I think, sometimes, because it's people find it very hard to discuss of course it's sensitive mm -hmm. and do you say in a lot of the work that you do weight is something that's quite difficult to be brought up um it's i think it's in the way that i do maybe not so much because i think people are expecting it from a from maybe a dietitian who specializes in diabetes um i think certain healthcare professionals maybe sometimes those conversations maybe be more difficult um but it is so important that people are made aware of sort of these modifiable, if you like, risk factors that um, if there are ways to to make some changes to maybe people's food choices or or the amount of physical activity they're doing, what that can mean for the long term. And if that's a conversation about someone's body weight, then mm. I think it's really important that we do have them. Oh, 100%. And you're right, working in your field in dietetics, it's um, the sensitive conversations have to happen. It's going to be life-changing for so many people. And let's go in a little bit more to the difference because I think this is where diet really does differ again between type one and type two. So if you want to just explain the two differences there and what's really happening essentially in the body and let's start with type one maybe. Sure. So type one diabetes is what we call an autoimmune condition. So so with autoimmune conditions, what's happening here is the cells that are in the pancreas. So these are the beta cells. These are the cells that produce insulin and insulin is produced in response to when we eat certain foods. So particularly carbohydrate foods, then they will break down and get turned into sugar or glucose that goes into the bloodstream and causes an, an increase in blood glucose levels. Now, someone with type 1 diabetes, the body's really seen the cells that make insulin. It's attacked them thinking they're like a foreign body. And so that person is not able to make any insulin at all. So someone with type 1 needs to take insulin every day for the rest of their lives um, in order to leave a, lead a, a healthy uh, lifestyle and for longevity. So it's really important that they have insulin uh, both in the background, but also every time they eat or have a snack, if it's containing carbohydrate, then they also need to dose uh, insulin for that. So some with type 1 diabetes, um, people often get very frustrated because they uh, get sometimes labelled as type 2 or people just assume they have type 2 and people think, oh, it's because they're you know overweight or the lifestyle they're leading and actually it's their body's just not able to produce the insulin so they need to basically take account of that so they need to count the carbohydrate that they're eating and also adjust their insulin for other lifestyle factors such as exercise or alcohol yeah and that's that's the key thing there to remember that you mentioned at the beginning it's autoimmune um and does this mean for somebody perhaps if one of their parents were um, diabetic, then they're more likely to be diabetic as well? Is there a genetic element there with type 1? 
So there's a small genetic element, yeah. I mean, certainly, um, but it is it's quite smaller. And actually, type two diabetes has got a much stronger genetic uh, link than type one. So certainly, if both parents have type one diabetes, then there is quite a high uh, percentage risk. But actually, with one parent, it's it's a very low percentage risk of of going on to get type one. So it generally doesn't when in families. There are some rarer types of diabetes. So there's something called MODI, which is a maturity onset diabetes of the young, which again only accounts probably for about one or two percent of diabetes and this can run in families and um, it's usually diagnosed under the age of 25 but as I say it's quite a rare type of diabetes. Yeah no it's it's really really interesting what management options are there out there then for somebody with type 1? Well, for type one, it's really about uh, trying for for those people to one uh, have good knowledge about how to manage day in day out. So, as I mentioned, that would be things like knowing how to adjust their insulin around what they're eating. That's one of the kind of cornerstones, if you like, of managing their diabetes. And so, people with type one are offered a what we call a structured education course. One of the most um, well-known ones is called DAFNI, which stands for mm. Dose Adjustment <laughs> for Normal Eating. Um, it's one of the courses that I teach at the hospital I work at. And what this course does is it really equips people with the with the tools to be able to manage day in, day out. So it's not relying on healthcare professionals to, to manage their diabetes for them. They may only see a healthcare team two or three times a year. So it's actually teaching them the skills to adjust their insulin, to be aware of these different lifestyle factors that they may need to adjust for as well. Teaching people about the the benefit of eating a healthy diet as well and other factors such as their cholesterol level and their blood pressure. And um, yeah, just teaching them how to hopefully live a normal life. Uh, And yes, they've got lots of extra things they need to do each day, like measuring their blood glucose levels and calculating the carbs that they're having. But actually, people can do all sorts of amazing things. Um, There's nothing really to stop people as long as they can adjust their insulin around uh, what they're, they're doing. And it's about kind of not letting the diabetes control them it's about kind of working with the diabetes yeah yeah which is much more empowering because Mm -hmm. there's so many options out there now I mean I've got a um one of my best friends has I'm not sure the exact term for it the new um the thing you put in your arm oh yeah so it's a um basically what we call flash glucose monitoring um Mm. so it's uh so this one's called usually probably the freestyle Libra is what she's using and what this does is it basically measures the blood glucose levels every few minutes um and then people can use their their mobile phone there's an app on there and they can just pass that over the top of the sensor so instead of actually pricking their finger to get some blood out and putting that onto a strip this actually just measures their their blood glucose continually and then they can get that information on their phone so yeah it's a been a huge step forward in terms of technology over the last few years I mean on their phone that's that's incredible I think it was a member of the royal family I can't remember which one that um had one of these and it became became almost fashionable at the time for people with diabetes it was um photographed but there, there's a big mis- misconception isn't there between type 1 and type 2 all the time I'm constantly hearing people refer to diabetes as a very broad bracket bracket rather and they are very different, aren't they? And type two isn't just about having a diet high in sugar, is it? No, definitely not. I mean, this is a, a massive myth. And I think, you know, something that we hear all the time as healthcare professionals mm. and people with diabetes get very frustrated about as well. So, yeah, I mean, type two uh, diabetes, it's kind of what we call a metabolic disease as well. So it tends to come in a package. Often people will also have other risk factors for heart disease. So people might have high blood pressure and they may also um, have high cholesterol levels as well. So there's within the body, there's not just a kind of a dysregulation 
regulation, if you like, with blood glucose levels, there's also other factors um, going on. And like you say, it's not just about um, what someone's eating. There's a, there's a big genetic link there. Um, mm. So as I mentioned, it does run in families. We also know women that actually have gestational diabetes and um, their babies are more likely to go on and get type 2 diabetes as well um, later on in life. So, you know, it can pass through from generation to generation. Um, we do know that body weight has a, a big factor to play there as well. So, you know, people assume diabetes and sugar, but it's not just sugar that causes someone to be overweight. So there's huge amounts of other factors in terms of, you know, what someone's physical activity levels might be like, what their day to day food choices are. So if someone's eating you know, lots of processed foods, for example, or lots of takeaway foods or um, lots of foods that might be high in calories um, on a regular basis, then that will be contributing as well. And ethnicity, it's important to mention that um, depending on your ethnicity, um, that will also play a part as well. So we know people, if you're over the age of 25 and you're black or South Asian, and you've also got a high body weight and you've got diabetes in your family, then you're at very high risk as well. Yeah, and that's not even mentioning mental health, because I suppose the impacts on your mental health from perhaps being diagnosed or maybe even before you get diagnosed could play a role. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's certain medications that um, sometimes in, in mental health that are used, so people potentially with schizophrenia or bipolar disorder, there's certain medications that people might be on that can actually increase the risk of diabetes, even though it's only a small increase in risk, they, they can actually do that. Um, but equally, you know, if we just think about things like depression, then if someone's depressed, then their food choices uh, may well be affected and also the level of activity they're doing as well. And that might contribute towards their, their body weight, which then also might increase their, their risk of diabetes. But there's also this kind of causal link as well between, you know, when people have diabetes, we know there is a, a higher um, incidence of depression as well. And we don't know whether it's the diabetes necessarily that causes that depression or whether depression causes more diabetes. It's difficult sometimes to unpick that, but there's definitely a relationship there. Yeah, no, it, it's, it's one of those things as well that I think there's a lot of stigma perhaps with type 2 diabetes. Uh, people make assumptions like we said before as well. And they also make assumptions with the diet, which I'm sure, Chris, you hear all the time. Um, diabetes and type 2, let's discuss with um, dietary management. It's not just about quitting carbs, is it? Uh, no, definitely not. No. So it's, um, there's, there's really no one size fits all approach to how someone manages their diabetes. Um, so with, if you think about type two, the, we do know that I've mentioned before that body weight is, is important. So if someone is overweight, actually, we know the key, key thing that people can do is to try and find ways to lose weight. But we know that in terms of how you do that, we're not all the same. So what might work for one person is not going to work for someone else. And, it's kind of trying to find and work out and uh, working maybe with your healthcare team as well, just to find what, what's going to work um, for you. And um, so, yes, you might want to be trying to, you know, achieve weight loss, but how do you do that? So just a few examples of different options that people might look at there is the kind of low fat, sort of healthy eating approach. So it might be looking at your overall food choices and kind of identifying where there might be certain things that you're eating that you can swap out for, for something else. And there's a kind of Mediterranean diet, which I think you've probably spoken about on, on some of mm. your other shows. Um, so this is a predominantly sort of more plant-based, lots of fruits and vegetables with, with fish and oily fish included, um, not too much red meat in there. 
and um, more healthy fats as well. So things like olive oil and rapeseed oil. Yeah, because, you know, these Mediterranean, the Mediterranean diet has also got a lot of fiber, doesn't it? Which is, again, something that it's not a blanket approach of quitting one food group because obviously that food group will contain a lot of other good stuff too. Exactly, yeah. And, you know, fad diets are, you know, I, I kind of class a fad diet as, as a diet that kind of cuts out a whole food group. And any, anything that does that, one, it's not usually sustainable for people and two, you're really going to be cutting out maybe a lot of fiber out of your diet um, and then you know you're going to be missing out there so in the long term we don't know what the long-term health concerns of that might be so it's important to kind of try and include all the different food groups but look at something that's going to be workable and sustainable for you um, yeah so could i ask a question on your thoughts on products on the shop shelves that you see particularly in places i don't like some pharmacy type shops um that say you know diabetic friendly chocolate bar or those sorts of products i mean are they things that you would recommend no basically um and <laughs> and actually um diabetic foods that they haven't been recommended by by dietitians i know diabetes uk they've got a statement as well on their website and they they don't recommend them either and we haven't been recommending them for you know, sort of over 30 years mm. the reason being is one though they're expensive and there's actually no need for anyone with diabetes to, to buy these foods. If someone did want some chocolate, then I would just say go and buy some chocolate. Just obviously don't eat it too too often if you're trying to manage your weight or if you're, uh, you know, if you've got type one, there's no reason you can't go and buy chocolate and just manage that with the amount of insulin you take. Um, but these types of um, diabetic foods as well, they tend to use a sweetener, which is a, an alcohol based sweetener. So they're the things like malatol or sorbitol. And if you have too much of them, they also have a laxative effect in many people. Yeah, and that's something people definitely don't talk about a lot. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, not pleasant. And what about other lifestyle things? So we've discussed what not to kind of go for. And it's not just as simple as cutting out a food group. We know that perhaps losing a bit of weight may be helpful. But again, that's such a blanket term, isn't it? Because you can be healthy and not be a perfect, perfect range BMI because mm. everybody is so unique. But what would you say are the crucial things, Chris, that individuals should be adopting in their lifestyle when it comes to type 2 diabetes and perhaps type 1 too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I mean, I think exercise is a is a crucial part, um, both for type one and type two diabetes. So it's important for all of us, actually, whether we have diabetes or not. Um, you know, important in so so many ways in terms of our risk of other uh, diseases like heart disease, but also for our, our mental health as well. And we've already spoken a little bit about depression and, and diabetes. So that's definitely a, a key thing. Um, the other thing uh, is just to consider potentially about the carbohydrate intake. I think there's a lot of controversy around um, how much carbohydrate someone with diabetes should have. So there's there's many people that are very adamant that particularly in type two diabetes, that people should be following a low carb approach to be able to, to lose weight and, um, and also so they don't have too big a spike in their blood glucose levels after eating as well. And then many people with type one diabetes will also prefer this approach. And, and actually low carb can work extremely well for some people um it's important when we think about low carb to say what we what we mean by low carb as well and i'm talking probably here in the region of between 50 and 130 grams of carbohydrate a day um now many people would find sort of 50 grams very unsustainable for the long term and um so you know a higher intake might be be more workable but 
carbohydrate intake and quality of carbs that people are having as well so i think the key thing for anyone as well is about the quality of the food that they're eating yes. so it's about you know the, the amount of fiber that they're having how much processed and refined uh, foods they're having as well within their their food choices so making yeah. sure that they're trying to sort of not have those too often it's um, those two yeah. cues that's what we're always saying on this podcast yeah. Chris it's the quality yeah. and the quantity mm-hmm. um, of the diet that everybody should be looking out for so mm-hmm. I suppose for most people it would be just reducing those refined perhaps the pastries and all the delicious um <laughs> delicious cakes and things like that and perhaps opting for more whole grains in the diet um mm-hmm. a little bit more as a, as a blanket generic um kind of way of looking at it I suppose mm-hmm. although we know it's much more complex than that that's the problem with the nutritional things is that everybody reacts to food so differently and everyone has a different diet in the first place so um, for some people they may not need to go low carbs it's important we reiterate that you speak to your um, healthcare professional before you make any sudden dietary um, changes and like Chris said exercise is so so crucial but what about drinking then we touched on alcohol earlier and um, do you think increasing alcohol can increase the risk of diabetes? Well, I mean, alcohol has a lot of calories in it, so it depends on your consumption of alcohol and, and you know, other factors that are going on within your lifestyle choices as well. But certainly if someone's drinking quite heavily, then that might be having an influence on their body weight. It probably is doing, um, and they may also be conversely making other unhealthy food choices um just because sometimes the two might go hand in hand and and it might also be affecting the quality of their sleep so um you know i think a moderate amount of alcohol is generally uh, sort of fine for many people but it's about where you you kind of draw the line with that and um yeah and i think that's something people have to look at in their own kind of consumption and be honest with themselves as well um so i think if you're you know the the, the guidelines at the moment are 14 units uh, a week so mm. um if you're sort of consuming more than that um so maybe if you're drinking sort of every every day of the week i know during lockdown people have sort of generally been sometimes increasing their alcohol consumption then it might be worth just having a look at that yeah and what does that look like if you could just um summarize 14 units just for everyone listening yeah, sure. So um, if you're thinking about a pint of beer, if it's quite a high strength beer, then that might be uh, so one high strength beer of about 5% might be around sort of two and a half to, to even three units as would be a large um, glass of wine as well. So a, a bottle of wine would be about 10 units of alcohol. So if you think about, you know, how many bottles of wine have I had in the last week? Um, that's a good way of kind of looking at that. And a shot of spirits would be, so that's a 25 mil um, shot would be one unit of alcohol. Yeah, there you go. Um, I think it's very easy to overconsume on that, um, the alcohol part. And what about smoking then? That's the other key thing. I think everybody knows it's not good for you, but does that have an impact on diabetes? It does, yeah. So we know there's a, an association and so people who smoke, we know it can affect your blood pressure. It also increases other associated conditions like heart disease. And so if you've also got diabetes and you're smoking as well, we know it, the risk of complications is increased quite significantly, particularly to things like nerve damage and um, because it can affect things like your blood pressure as well in terms of your kidney uh, function. So it's really important, um, both if you're at risk of diabetes and also if you have diabetes to maybe look at options for smoking cessation. Yeah, no, it's, it's important. And I just think that 
a healthy lifestyle in general, of course, is going to help with any sort of um, ailment in today's um, crazy modern world, because we know a lot of people turn to alcohol or smoking or food when things are getting a bit tough. But we do need to try and think of other ways because... Well, in terms of lifelong health, um, health is definitely the new wealth. And we haven't touched on sleep, actually, Chris. Do you think there is a link between sleep? Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Um, yeah, so we do know, again, there is an association between the amount of sleep that people have and type 2 diabetes. So as adults, ideally, we should be getting, we think, around seven to nine hours um, per night. And if you're getting poor quality sleep, so you're not sleeping enough, then what that can do is it can actually increase your stress hormone response. And what we know this links with is your uh, body's insulin resistance. So you're basically not able to clear the sugar out of your blood away as quickly as you would normally do and that's one of the things that can lead on to type 2 diabetes so sleep hygiene is really important uh, that could be things like meditation or the amount of screen time you're having particularly screen time and um, before bed as well and also thinking about your stress levels um, so if you're going to bed sort of very stressed and not sleeping well then there is again there's a lot of help out there that you could maybe seek to try and look at sort of sleep hygiene and try and improve your sweet sleep quality Gosh, it's fascinating. Honestly, I just think um, the human body is incredible. And it's, it's the core basics, isn't it? Eat well, move and sleep. Um, but it's so hard to do in today's world. It's, it's really hard. And I think recently, a number of research papers that have been published, they do suggest that it's possible, obviously, to reverse type 2 diabetes. So what exactly is diabetes remission then, if we've got this research now, and how can that be achieved? Yeah, so I think the first thing just to say, it's important to distinguish between reversal and remission of diabetes. Um, they're two kind of terms that are used, but ideally we should be using this term remission just because the term reversal, I think, kind of makes people think that you can kind of get rid of, of diabetes. So if you've got type 2 diabetes, uh, you can put it into remission. We do know that now, but there is still that risk that it can come back. Um, so this all has come about... Um, 
more recently because of really a big landmark trial which was called the direct study and what this did is it actually used a liquid-based formula diet which was 850 calories a day and the people that were taking part in this trial they had this uh, liquid diet for a period of three months and what they found is that those people that were able to lose weight over that time were able to um, basically put their diabetes into remission and the amount of weight that they lost so we know that if they lost between 10 and 15 kilograms six out of 10 of them achieved remission and those that actually achieved more than 15 kilograms of weight loss 90 percent of them achieved remission wow 90 percent. so good stats there then yeah, it wasn't. But it is important just to say that the people that were part of that study, um, one, they uh, all had diabetes for less than six years. So what we don't really know at the moment is if you've had type 2 diabetes for longer than six years, whether this kind of diet would be as effective, uh, whether as many people would achieve remission. And the other important thing to say is that, um, and this work is still ongoing, is about, it's about weight maintenance. It's about how people then kind of cope after this as well. So these people weren't just put on this diet and then after three months were just kind of left to get on with it. There's also a program of education that went alongside this, which also helped with food reintroduction and also kind of lapses as well. So there's kind of like a, you know, going maybe back onto a uh, part of this liquid diet a, a few months later if people needed to um, for a short period of time. So we don't really know what the longer term effects of this are at the moment, but it's still fantastic work um, and it's still ongoing. And it's um, it's really exciting to see that just how much that, you know, that amount of weight loss can actually influence uh, someone's um, risk of, of diabetes and being able to put that diabetes into remission. And spoken by a true health professional there, just um, taking taking into account that there's so many other cofactors, there's so many things you don't know from a study and things going on behind the scenes and follow-ups and more research needed. All too often we see headlines in the media, don't we, Chris, of uh, perhaps that particular study could have made some miracle headline claim, but you, you just have to be so, so careful um, when looking at any kind of um, research. And let's go on then to gestational diabetes, which we again touched on earlier. So what can people do to reduce their risk of getting that? Um, and then throughout pregnancy, you've mentioned this can also cross to the baby then afterwards or, or during pregnancy even. Yeah, so I think if we think about the risk factors for gestational diabetes, so like uh, type 2 diabetes, body weight plays a big influence. So if you're planning pregnancy and uh, particularly if you've got diabetes in your family as well, then trying to think about your body weight before uh, conceiving that can help to reduce your your risk um, um, if you've had gestational diabetes in a previous pregnancy we do know you're more likely to get it in your next one as well so again if you're again if you're planning for pregnancy maybe thinking about uh, things like body weight uh, is important and also obviously your food choices uh, during pregnancy as well and uh, we also know if you've had a large baby in a previous pregnancy, so about four and a half kilos, then that also puts you at higher risk of gestational diabetes. And um, the other kind of non-modifiable risk factor, if you like, is about ethnicity. So if you're South Asian or Black or African Caribbean um, or from a Middle Eastern background, we also know that it does put you at higher risk of going on to get gestational diabetes. Yeah, um, I mean, so you said, obviously, instantly in terms of long-term risks what about to the to the mum did you say after 
they've had this, do they then need to be super careful afterwards? Yeah, so I think um, you know if you think about what's the risk actually for the for the baby and and for mum. So um, yeah, for mum afterwards, then we do know that there is a risk of of mum going on to get type two diabetes in the next few years. So the actual risk is about fifty to sixty percent. So it's actually quite high with that peaking about five years um, after the baby's born. So um, again, this doesn't mean to say that they'll definitely go on to get diabetes, but it does kind of give a bit of a warning shot, if you like, to think actually what maybe can I modify in terms of my, my food choices and my, um, my behaviours that might help to reduce that risk, which is some of the things that we've, we've spoken about. Um, in the actual pregnancy, it's important to say as well, like with the, the actual blood glucose levels, if things are managed very well, and so when a lady is diagnosed with gestational diabetes, they'll be um, under specialist care, usually a specialist unit at a hospital, and um, they will help with managing the the blood glucose levels and the kind of cornerstone of that management is around diet and exercise and, and food choices um if if the diabetes is kind of left untreated and the blood glucose levels are running high then it can lead to complications so the kind of things that can happen is um you can get a large baby and um, particularly around the um the the waist and this can lead to a higher instance of c-sections and induced labor and baby can also actually, when it's delivered, have a low blood glucose level as well. I mean, this is usually rectified very quickly, but it can obviously be quite distressing for, for both mother and baby as well. And um, that baby can then have a higher risk of type 2 diabetes in later life. Oh, gosh, yeah, it's, it's so important. This is why education, I think, needs to be there, because we said at the beginning, it's very confusing. Um, first, you've got the different types of diabetes, then you've got the individual differences, but you also have um, the long term and short term um, implications to consider. And we've got lots of questions, Chris, if you don't mind. Um, I know it's very hard over a podcast to, to offer any kind of advice, obviously, ethically, but we do have some questions from our listeners I'm hoping you could um, shed light on. And the first is from Jamila. She said, I have polycystic ovarian syndrome. Could that mean I'm going to be insulin resistant? Yeah, it's quite likely. So we do know that um, women with PCOS uh, are generally uh, more likely to have insulin resistance. And often it is treated with a tablet which is called metformin. So this is a common tablet that's used actually in gestational diabetes, but in type 2 diabetes as well. And it can help to reduce the, the level of insulin resistance. So um, yeah, it's worth kind of having that conversation with your healthcare team. Yeah, because surely everybody has a complete unique case on this because lots of people with polycystic ovarian syndrome, you know, could be extremely healthy um, and eating a very good diet. But again, because it doesn't necessarily mean they're going to definitely be insulin resistant, does it? No, exactly. No. So like you say, it's going to be individual. Um, and there's there's tests that can be be done to look at that. Um, we didn't mention one of the tests that's used in, in diabetes, which is called a HbA1c test. So that basically measures the amount of blood um, glucose levels over about a three month period. So that's a, a way of kind of looking at um, insulin resistance, as well as looking at whether someone might have diabetes as well. But yeah, many people with, um, with polycystic ovarian syndrome won't have insulin resistance as well. Um, and so yeah it will link also with things like body weight so if you've got PCOS and you you've got a high body weight then again you're more likely to have insulin resistance well yeah and then that moves me nicely on to Christine's question and she's mentioned um so instead of weight she's mentioned cholesterol levels she said what are healthy cholesterol levels should I be worried I don't want mine getting too high 
Yeah, so with cholesterol, we uh, tend to look at uh, things like the HDL cholesterol and the LDL cholesterol. So HDL is high density lipoprotein, and then there's LDL, which is low density lipoprotein. And then this is all kind of bagged together as your total cholesterol level. So if you've got diabetes, what we're looking ideally for is a total cholesterol level below four. But then we would also generally break that down and look at these kind of HDLs, which are more the positive or the, the beneficial uh, fats and cholesterol levels, and then the LDL, which are the more harmful uh, ones. So generally we'd want a HDL cholesterol above one and uh, an LDL um, cholesterol uh, to be uh, below I think it's below two we'll have to check my fact on that because it is very very yeah. no that's really really um, important to note that I think a lot of people I, I've had instances in our clinic um, Chris where people have come in and they've done one of these gym tests that says they've got high cholesterol but then you actually look at the breakdown mm-hmm. and it's not actually worrying when you look at the ratio of HDL to LDL and so I think it's important people know um, to look out for that. And then we've got the last question. Um, ben has said, as a pre-diabetic, should I be avoiding carbs, which we've kind of discussed earlier? Oh, and then I add on to that. And does it make me more susceptible to COVID? Hmm. Um, okay. So, yeah, I mean, in terms of avoiding carbs, I would say no, um, just because that's basically what we talked about before. You're going to be cutting out a whole food group. And if you want to, if you cut out carbs completely, you need to replace those with something else. And generally, that's going to mean a very high fat diet. Now, that can be done in a, in a healthier way, but often people, when they uh, supplement all of their carbs with, with fat instead, it can mean a higher saturated fat intake which can increase your cholesterol levels so i would say you could maybe think about possibly modifying your carbohydrate if that's an approach that works for you to help you if you're overweight to be able to lose weight for example but uh, i would say somewhere more in the region of sort of 50 to 130 grams as a, as a low carb diet is what you should be um, looking at uh, rather than kind of a, a carb-free diet yeah. In terms of the COVID question, then uh, I'm not aware of any uh, risk in terms of pre-diabetes. There is some association in diabetes where if people have got poorly controlled diabetes and uh, uh, their age is also an influencing factor as well um, about their outcomes with COVID, but not in terms of actually getting COVID. Yeah, I think there's a lot of concern at the moment with um COVID, and regardless of the time that you're listening to this podcast, um, I guess it's important just to be aware that you just want to be as healthy as you can, I suppose, within reason. Um, But there is no evidence that diabetes means you're more likely to get COVID. I think maybe that came from the fact that you're in a higher risk group, aren't you? Are you considered high risk? Is that correct? Yeah, Because I remember when I was pregnant, I was high risk. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it's more about if the, if someone with diabetes is to get COVID, it's not that they're more likely to get it. It's just if they get COVID, then their outcomes may be, particularly if they've got a poorly controlled um, diabetes or if they're someone that's uh, older, so if they're above 70 and living with diabetes, then it kind of increases their risk even further. So that's um, that's why. Yeah, no. So let's move on to the fun part of the podcast. Um, well, we'll see if you find it fun, Chris. Uh, the fact <laughs> or fiction round. Are you ready? As I'll ever be, let's do it. Okay, so if you could answer fact or fiction to the following questions. People with diabetes can't eat sugar. Fiction. If you have type 1 diabetes, you'll have it for life. Fact. Your eyesight is poor if you have diabetes. Fiction. 
Developing gestational diabetes means you'll get type 2 diabetes. Fiction, but it does put you at high risk. There you go. Pre-diabetes is a warning sign that you have a high risk of developing type 2 diabetes. Yeah, that's a fact. Yeah, for sure. And there's actually, uh, I didn't mention before, but we think there's around 7 million people in the UK that have pre-diabetes and they're actually 15 times more likely to go mm. on to get um, diabetes. So, yeah. Wow. Big stat again there. Um, only people who are overweight have diabetes. Fiction. In the UK, 3.9 million people have been diagnosed with diabetes. I think that's a fact, uh, but <laughs> I haven't checked the latest stats, but it's, it may even be more than I was going to say. It's possibly more than that now. So I don't know. Um, yeah, I know the projections are for it to be uh, more than sort of five million. So it's going up all the time. So Cracking. I'm going to say possibly fact, but it may be fiction by go. now. Um, you will definitely develop type 2 diabetes if one of your parents has it. Fiction. Diet is the best way to manage type 2 diabetes. Fact. Fatigue can be common with diabetes. Fiction. So, yeah, some people can get fatigued, but it tends to be more related to poor control of their their blood glucose levels. Well, that was very, very concise, Chris. Thank you for answering our fact or fiction round so speedily, may I add, and with the perfect information. And so that does nearly wrap up today's episode. And I'm so glad, Chris, that we managed to get this in because I know that we've been trying to do this particular episode for a while. And I'm so grateful that we've managed to get you on. So we always finish our episodes uh, with a food for thought. So today I'll start by saying that I think that I think it's really daunting if you're diagnosed with anything, but when people say diabetes, there's so many scary headlines around. And I think one thing you said earlier, Chris, that you can live with it and it's totally manageable now, which is a nice positive thing. If you have just been diagnosed with something that you can manage it, but you need to talk to someone, you need to surround yourself with positive people and health professionals that can guide you. And we're so lucky, I think, because we're recording this in the UK to have access to a service like the NHS, where there's lots of information out there. Now, it's something that I think will also stand um, people in a good stead for leading a healthy lifestyle, which is obviously the diet, um, physical activity, but also sleep, which we mentioned earlier. And I can definitely tell you currently as a new mum that I miss that a lot. And it makes perfect sense why sleep has such an important role on your body. So basically, the decisions that we make day to day can have an impact on our life in many years to come as well. So... Chris, as the health professional and the expert in this podcast, would you like to leave our listeners, please, with a take-home message? Yeah, so I'd just like to say, just be aware that not all diabetes is the same. If you, if you come across someone and they tell you they have diabetes, please don't make assumptions. Take time if they're happy to share with you and find out what type it is. Don't judge them and please don't tell them that they can't eat you know a chocolate bar or sugar it's the one thing that I hear time and time again and it really drives people crazy so just take time to find out and if you think you're at risk of type 2 diabetes then just be aware it is preventable um I would recommend going onto the Diabetes UK website they've got a know your risk score on there so you can actually mm. kind of go in and fill that out and actually it will tell you what your risk is and if you are at high risk you can actually then self-refer to the NHS's diabetes prevention program if you're living in England so that's a great thing that you can do to empower yourself to kind of find out more and go and do um, something about it. 
That's that's um, incredibly informative. But what, how can our listeners find out more about you, Chris, or where can they get more information there? Yeah, so I um, write a series of best-selling books, which are called Carbs and Cows. So yes. we have a website called carbsandcows.com. Uh, we're also on social media at Carbs and Cows, and we have an app as well. So yeah, please come and find out more about us. We've got lots on gestational diabetes and um, lots of help for people with both type 1 and type 2 diabetes as well, and loads of free resources on our website. And I remember reading that at university, and I have a copy at the moment as well, I believe, in yeah, on my bookshelf that I can see to my left Chris thank you so much for I'm still so so happy that you managed to come on the podcast it's always so very humbling for me to speak to other incredible health professionals and thank you for sharing your knowledge today that's been a pleasure thank you for having me if you enjoyed this episode you'll absolutely love what's coming next week so make sure that you click subscribe to be the first to hear it If you have time to, we'd really appreciate it if you want to leave a review so that we can reach those higher highs in the charts and hopefully help more people. That is our mission here with this podcast. For more information about my Retrition Clinic, the books, healthy recipes, and so much more, please visit Retrition.com and follow me at Retrition on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. 